This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about some of the more specific threats of playing with nuclear war threats, it is not at all clear our president understands. Our clips today come from Counterspin, Intercepted, Thinking Cap, Who, What, Why, Pax, and The Ezra Klein Show. There were many low lights of Donald Trump's September 19th speech at the UN, but for many, the nadir was his statement that, quote, The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. But for corporate media, the announcement of the possibility of killing 25 million people was no big deal. For the New York Times, it was Trump showing his usual confrontational style of leadership. The Washington Post wondered about the idea that Trump's remarks about North Korea were a break from past U.S. policy. Wired magazine told readers that there are two very important things to understand about North Korea in this context, neither of which is that it contains millions of human beings. They were instead that no one has perfect insight into what Kim Jong-un thinks and that North Korea is paranoid that the United States is going to eliminate them. Though the writer did add that, quote, In fairness, Trump's remarks may have been precisely calculated, a four-dimensional chess move designed to bring about a political outcome rather than barreling toward a disastrous use of force, close quote. And in an article for which he was presumably paid in actual money, CNN's Chris Saliza declared Trump's U.N. speech, quote, in a word, Trumpian, close quote. Recalling previous bellicose threats, Saliza notes, quote, the promise to totally destroy an entire country seems to take things even a step further, close quote. Of zero interest to serious journalists was the fact that countries who signed the U.N. Charter in 1945, as the Intercept's John Schwartz reminded, are not supposed to wantonly threaten use of force against other states. And even including his phrase about the U.S. being forced to defend itself, the rules of preemptive war require proportionality and necessity that Trump's statement do not evince. Schwartz quotes the vice president of the European Society of International Law, who called Trump, quote, morally repugnant for treating the 25 million people of North Korea as something to be extinguished at will, close quote. Corporate media's blasé attitude to genocide isn't confined to Trump. As Adam Johnson noted for FAIR, a week or so back, CNN's Jake Tapper conducted a chummy interview with John McCain, in which the Arizona senator casually declared, quote, If Kim Jong-un acts in an aggressive fashion, the price will be extinction, close quote. Note that McCain didn't say if North Korea attacks the U.S., but simply if it acts in an aggressive fashion. But not only did Tapper not ask him to clarify that, he had no follow-up at all about the tossed-off threat to kill millions of people. He just moved along to a question about immigration. Nothing to see here. In related news, the September 18th New York Times reported on the Senate passage of a bill giving the Pentagon $700 billion, more money than Trump even asked for. As Ben Norton noted for FAIR, the story all but openly applauded the bill, calling it a rare act of bipartisanship that sets forth a muscular vision of America as a global power. The article quoted three people, only one of whom was not an elected official, none of whom opposed the budget expansion. That one non-official was Anthony Cordesman, who, though the paper didn't disclose it, was previously John McCain's national security assistant and a former employee of the Pentagon, the State Department, and NATO. 
Cordesman now is an analyst at the Bellicose think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which, though the paper didn't disclose it, is funded by the governments of the U.S. and its military allies, along with leading corporations in the arms industry. Cordesman used his space as a putatively independent expert in the U.S. newspaper of record to make the absurd claim that the Senate's gigantic Pentagon bill was a response to years of underfunding of the U.S. military. That would be the same military funding that accounts for nearly half of U.S. discretionary spending. And at $611 billion in 2016, represents more military spending than the next eight largest countries combined, six of whom are U.S. allies. By way of reference, the U.N. and anti-poverty organizations have estimated that it would cost just $30 billion a year to end world hunger. Trump has said he would consider totally destroying North Korea, a nation of 25 million people. Kim Jong-un's government says it has interpreted Trump's recent statements about North Korea as a declaration of war. North Korea has threatened to detonate a hydrogen bomb in response to the threats from Trump and to shoot down U.S. warplanes. Trump called Kim Jong-un rocket man and Kim called Trump a dotard. None of the North Korean reaction or counter threats are surprising, but it is hard not to view Trump as erratic, manic, and frankly dangerous, particularly when you consider the vast nuclear arsenal at Trump's fingertips. Now, during the election, a lot of people talked about, oh my God, what would happen if Trump had his you know, finger on the nuclear button? But what does it really mean? Well, all of this got me to looking into how easy would it actually be for Trump to use a nuclear weapon? And the answer is that it would be unthinkably easy, frighteningly easy. I'm joined now by physicist David Wright. He is co-director of the Union of Concerned Scientists Global Security Program. David, welcome to Intercepted. Nice to be here. What is the current system for initiating a nuclear strike within the United States government. How does it work? Who holds that authority? What oversight is there? Surprisingly, there's less oversight and uh, it's more streamlined than I think most people realize. Ultimate authority lies with the president of the United States. There are various uh, pieces of the procedure that are put in place to make sure that it's the person the president communicates to, knows that it's the president and that kind of thing. But if you if you strip out those sort of authentication uh, steps, it basically comes down to the president talking to advisors, which he or she may or, or may not do, deciding to launch, choosing an option either from a prepared list of options that the military has put together or developing a new one, and then calling what's called the war room or the National Military Command Center in the Pentagon, telling them what uh, option he's chosen, telling them when he wants the launch to take place. And that's basically it. The war room then prepares a short message that's sent out to bomber bases, missile bases, and submarines. And as long as they get the right authentication codes, their job is to launch the attack they've been told to launch. A decision is being made by the president and the joint chiefs in the war room at the Pentagon. And when they realize there is no possibility of recalling the wing, there will be only one course of action open. Total commitment. You know, you mentioned that he, he may or may not talk to advisors, but when you boil it down to it, authority to use a nuclear weapon is solely held by the president of the United States. That's right. And in fact, there are no legal grounds for somebody else uh, stopping an order that was made illegally. And is the president required to communicate with anyone in Congress before launching a nuclear weapon? No. Is the president required to confer with the Secretary of Defense about this? 
No. I mean, it's assumed that uh, the president would, but there's no requirement. It sounds like what you're saying is that if the president of the United States, if Donald Trump decided that he wanted to use a nuclear weapon, that the only thing that could potentially stop it would be if individuals violated that order and said, I'm not going to do this. That's right. And they would be breaking the law in doing that. Yeah. Some people have argued that people would have to decide, do they think this was made by the proper processes and things like that? But if they had no reason to believe that there was something wrong with the process, uh, they would have no legal authority to do that. There's kind of this lore around what's called the nuclear football. And maybe you can explain what the nuclear football is and what its current iteration looks like. The uh, procedure I just described assumed that the president was able to communicate with the people that he needed to through secure channels. If he's in the White House or the Pentagon, he can do that. If he's out on the road, you need to find another way to do that. And so the football is basically a, a bag that weighs about 45 pounds. It has secure communications equipment in it. It has a black book of options. And it has a card, which is called the biscuit, uh, which has codes on it that allows the president to convince the person at the Pentagon he's talking to that he is, in fact, the president who's sending this message. So basically, the idea behind the football is to allow the president to order a launch uh, no matter where he is. And for that reason, there has to be a military officer with him essentially at all times carrying this football. So as Trump travels around when he's at his golf courses or, you know, when he's at a political rally calling NFL players sons of bitches, the nuclear football is somewhere not far away. That's right. Not too long ago, he was at Mar-a-Lago at a dinner with some supporters and people were taking selfies with the, uh, the military officer who had the football. This really is always near him. Because of the hostile rhetoric emanating from Trump's Twitter feed, as well as from Pyongyang, you know, we, we now have North Korea saying that they view Trump's statements of late as a declaration of war, and they're asserting the right to shoot down U.S. war aircraft. You know, for the first time in, in the lives of young people, they have to face this notion that we live in a nuclear world in a much more real way than we did, say, you know, four or five years ago. What does it mean when nuclear weapons are on hair trigger alert? There are basically two ways that people talk about a nuclear war starting. Uh, one is if the president decided to launch a first strike, the first use of nuclear weapons. The other case is where there's warning of an attack coming in from another country and the United States, through its early warning sensors, its radars and its satellites, detects what they see as an incoming attack. And then the idea is to be able to get a retaliatory attack off the ground in a very short amount of time. This was really set up at a time when the U.S. and Russia were facing off back in the early days of the Cold War. There was a concern that what the United States relied on for deterrence at that point was its land-based missiles and that its land-based missiles were potentially vulnerable to a Soviet attack because the Soviets knew where they were. And so the idea was that if you saw an attack coming in, you didn't want to sit and wait until those warheads landed because it could knock out your missiles. And therefore, they set up a very streamlined process of launching a retaliatory attack to get the missiles off the ground before the incoming missiles could land. That is still the situation that about 900 uh, U.S. warheads are on. The U.S. has currently about 1,800 nuclear warheads, so about half of them are on hair-trigger alert. And what that means is that uh, within the sort of half an hour that it would take for a, a Russian launch, for example, to reach the United States, that a U.S. attack could be launched and sent back in its way. And so the problem with that is that you're relying on warning of an attack from sensors, from radars and satellites. And there have over the years been any number of times when those systems have uh, given false warning or there's been a problem in some cases with the people in the loop when people have thought that there was a launch and started to prepare for retaliation uh, when it turned out there wasn't. There was that film with Gene Hackman and uh, Denzel Washington, uh, Crimson Tide. And the plot of it basically is that the commander and the XO on this submarine are on hair trigger alert and there's uh, instability in 
Russia and communications get blocked and they don't know whether or not they're in a drill or they actually have been given the authority to use a nuclear weapon. Stop! Arrest this man and get him out of here! Under operating procedures governing the release of nuclear weapons, we cannot launch our missiles unless both you and I agree. Stop! What are you waiting for? This is expressly why your command must be repeated. It requires my assent. I do not give it. And furthermore, you continue upon this course and insist upon this launch without confirming this message first. I will be chief of the boat by the rules of precedent. Captain, commanding officer, regulations. I order you. The place XO under arrest under charge of Navy regulations. I say again, I order you to place the XO under arrest under charge of mutiny. That's the kind of scenario you're talking about where maybe it is, maybe it isn't, and you have to make a decision on it very quickly. Well, that's right. I mean, one of the the classic scenarios was the Pentagon uh, has a room where they monitor all their early warning systems. And back in 1979, all of a sudden it lit up basically saying that a full-scale Soviet attack, just like the ones they had practiced against, was underway. People checked and rechecked, and all the data that was coming into the computers you know, was perfect. At that point, they got a hold of, uh, of various people at the Pentagon, tried to make sure they knew what they were doing, and they were just about to w- wake up the president to, you know, tell the president that there was an incoming large-scale Soviet attack, when somebody realized that there was a training tape, the command centers that was being run, and somehow the data from that training tape had gotten into the operational computers. And so, in fact, it looked like just the kind of attack that people had, uh, had trained against, because in fact it was. It was a training tape. As I understand it to this day, nobody really understands how that information got from uh, the training tape computer to the actual operational computers. But that was a case where if you think about the very short amount of time that you've got, I mean, again, you're talking about less than a half an hour. That's try to make sense of the data that's coming in, uh, getting the people together to talk about what it means, get a hold of the president, get the president briefed and all that kind of thing. There's very little time to make a decision. And that's a case where, you know, you could have imagined uh, based on that, that the United States would have launched a very large retaliatory strike. What would be the case if senior people at the White House or in Congress questioned the mental stability of the commander in chief? Maybe he's acting very erratic. He is watching a lot of TV. He's arguing with strangers on the internet. He doesn't seem to be weighing in on important issues of the day, doesn't seem interested in reading his intelligence reports, you know, generally acting kind of nuts while in the White House. Has that ever happened before where where there's been a discussion about hmm, maybe the president's not of sound mind? Well, in fact, uh, it did happen late in the Nixon administration. Nixon was depressed from the Watergate uh, hearings. He was apparently um, drinking heavily. And people in the White House, in particular, uh, Secretary of Defense Schlesinger, was concerned about his mental state. Well, no, 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 I'd rather use a nuclear bomb. I just want you to think big, Henry, for God's sake. And told people at the Pentagon, if you get a launch order or something like that from the president, I want you to check with me before you carry it out. That was extra legal. That was not something that he was actually allowed to do. But I think there was a sense that uh, this was an extraordinary time and that it was probably justified. Uh, but, you know, it's a question of, of personalities then. How do you decide when uh, when that is justified and how do you decide whether if you're a a launch officer who's well down in the chain of command, what command will you follow, the one from the president or or somebody trying to contravene that order? What do you make of the way that Trump and Kim Jong-un are sort of duking it out on social media and, you know, with, with this sort of name-calling rhetoric? It's like insane, right? Uh, I would say insane is a pretty good word for that. I have to say, it's, it's just incredibly disturbing that... When you're talking about having tens of thousands of lives, especially in South Korea, at risk if something happens, I mean, as I think people have probably heard in the press, that if there is something that happens on the Korean Peninsula, for example, if the United States decides to try and launch a, an attack, say a conventional attack to take out bunkers or things like that, that North Korea has a very large number of artillery tubes that are aimed at Seoul, which is, you know, unfortunately quite close to the border between North and South Korea. And that in a very short amount of time, that could cause huge amounts of damage to uh, South Korea. And so from my point of view, having watched North Korea for a long time, I'm concerned that as 
as people let their personality get into this and start to see these things as personal affronts and start making, you know, drawing red lines and backing themselves into corners, what they really start to do is uh, reduce the number of options they have for moving forward. And I think that that's what I see as the real tragedy of the current situation is I think both President Trump and Kim Jong-un have made some very strong statements that it's going to take a lot to get them to walk away from. And yet the consequences of sort of taking, you know, step by step going forward in the direction it's going is incredibly dangerous. When Kim Jong-un came out a couple days ago and basically uh, made some very strong statements, uh, one of the concerns is that what that essentially did, I think, is undercut any sort of quiet behind-the-scenes diplomacy. Because when Kim Jong-un comes out and says, you know, we can't talk with this country that's essentially declared war on us, any kind of officials under Kim Jong-un who who are trying to carry out some sort of, uh, you know, behind-the-scenes dialogue puts them in a position of having to sort of cut those off if they're going to follow official position. And once that happens, I don't see what means you have to try and walk yourself back from the situation. I've watched North Korea for 25 years, and I've never been as worried as I am now about what may happen. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you, more specifically listeners like David H., Peter L., and just one more for good measure, Courtney G., who all signed up recently on Patreon. And of course, I appreciate everyone who contributes any amount, but David, Peter, and Courtney went above and beyond, signed up as professional protester-level members, and one of the perks of which is being thanked by name on air. So thanks to them for that, and to everyone who's been making the switch. For those of you who haven't signed up at all yet, uh, remember that members get access to a members-only podcast feed that includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, all in one place. Right now, we put out new members episodes every time there's a rerun for everyone else, and that's twice a month. Now, I like to think that the bonus content is just that, sort of a bonus for you, but that the main reason you would choose to support the show is just to support the show. You know, member subscriptions are the number one means of financial support we have, and easily the most important, as ads tend to be fickle and unreliable as a source of income for a show like this one. So whether you can only chip in a buck a month or 20, we really appreciate any support you can give. So please think about signing up. Find us at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com to get started. Thanks in advance for your support. Mike, what did you think of the president's commitment to double down on our nuclear strategy? Well, look, there's a lot to be concerned about when it comes to what President Trump is doing on foreign policy, but probably nothing more concerning than what he thinks about nuclear weapons. Um, this goes back years. Uh, you could see it on the campaign, his lack of understanding about what nuclear weapons, frankly, are uh, and what U.S. nuclear policy is, is frightening. Uh, he did not command a basic understanding of that on the campaign trail, and that continues to show to this day. You've seen him make repeated comments as president uh, and during the transition about his intent and his desire to rapidly expand the U.S. nuclear arsenal when, in fact, we've been spending the last couple of decades trying to reduce the nuclear arsenal that we possess uh, because of the danger of these weapons. Um, but what President Trump continued to reinforce in the United State of the Union was that he continues to want to increase the number of nuclear weapons the United States has uh, and the options that we have to deliver nuclear weapons. Now, he's arguing that the more nuclear weapons you have, the greater the deterrent to other countries uh, to, to not attack us first. Why, why is that wrong? Well, this is 1950s thinking, frankly. When we were just beginning the Cold War with the Soviet Union, everyone thought that basically the strategy to win was to build nuclear weapons, build more of them, build bigger ones, build them faster and build them stronger. Uh, that was what we did to a point where we and the Soviet Union together had tens of thousands of nuclear weapons stored. And it was only in the 1960s and 70s and 80s that we slowly began to realize 
you know what? This is really, really dangerous. If something accidental happened, there are accidents that happen all the time. Many of us saw just the other week in Hawaii that there was a false emergency alert sent out to all the citizens of Hawaii saying that there was an incoming missile. That's exactly the sort of accident that happened actually not too infrequently during the Cold War and could have launched uh, a nuclear holocaust. So basically what we're talking about here is that you don't need more nuclear weapons to be safer. You need a minimal credible deterrent. This is a small number of nuclear weapons just to make sure that the other side doesn't think that they can start a war. And that's it. But what Trump is doing is using completely outdated thinking. So, Mike, in our interview with Daniel, um, one of the things that we we talk or we explore is kind of this idea that nuclear weapons are so powerful that they can destroy any area or uh, geographic target. So with just one nuclear weapon, why is there this constant um, kind of effort to grow your nuclear arsenal if one weapon could cause so much devastation? Well, I think, look, it benefits a number of people here at home. This is what President Eisenhower called the military industrial complex. Um, We have a system of integrated government and private sector interactions that feed off of one another. And if you build a lot more weapons, especially big, expensive ones, uh, it's a feedback loop. And so that absolutely, I think, contributes to this. Uh, But second of all, and I think just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, is that building more nuclear weapons and talking this way emboldens other countries around the world to do the same thing. Russia right now has been violating international uh, agreements on arms control, and this will encourage them to do more. It will encourage other countries to do it. It will encourage North Korea to continue to possess and to build out its nuclear arsenal and encourage other states to try to get nuclear weapons because they'll see the signal that they think it makes them safe. Now, on North Korea, the president said that we are waging a campaign of maximum pressure to prevent any kind of nuclear threat. He argued that past experiences taught us that complacency and concessions only invite aggression and provocation. So what is the president's strategy towards North Korea as best as you could make out? It's a really good question. You always invite me on for the really uplifting parts uh, of the show, nuclear weapons (laughs) and North Korea. Um, But we do feel better after we speak to you. Okay, well, that's good. I'm not sure I feel better, but uh, I'm glad I'm making someone feel better about it. Um, I mean, look, I don't think that the president has a comprehensive strategy on North Korea. But I do think that what we're hearing and we heard from the president during his State of the Union address was not dissimilar to what we heard, frankly, from President George W. Bush and other administration officials in 2002 and 2003 as they began to lay the case publicly for war with Iraq. What we're hearing in recent months from the Trump administration, from senior officials and the president himself, is a case for why only military action will deal and handle with the threat or address the threat from North Korea. What we heard from them in the State of the Union was a, frankly, demonization of North Korea. But the question here is what we do to deal with it. And what this president is laying the predicate for, I think, is potential military action. And that is incredibly reckless. little bit about the strategy at the time. And you talked about it a moment ago about this effort to deter the the Soviet Union and the serious conversations that used to take place as they did in the movie Dr. Strangelove, from which the title of this book comes, about literally talking about first strike and 400 million people being killed, etc. The plan at that time and really Ever since the predominant shape of the planning for our use of nuclear weapons was to initiate their use, not as the public supposed or was told to retaliate to a an attack on our own weapons or on our, our own country. 
as of 1961, which is seven years after I started on the problem, it, it turned out that there was essentially no chance of a Soviet surprise attack. They didn't have the weapons for it. Instead of hundreds or even a thousand ICBMs, they turned out in 1961 to have four. No, no capability. They had not bought a capability to attack the United States. So that wasn't the problem. But meanwhile, uh, all this time, our Strategic Air Command had been oriented toward an attack on the Soviet Union, not out of the blue, not a Pearl Harbor attack, uh, but not a preventive war, in other words, but an attack that would arise out of a local conflict in Europe, as in Berlin, or an uprising in the satellites in which NATO intervened in some way, which quickly escalated by U.S. initiative to an attack to disarm the Soviet Union. Uh, and essentially destroy their society. A first strike then, as I say, not a preventive war, but either an escalation of a conflict that was non-nuclear to start with, or preemption, uh, as some people put it, striking second first, meaning in the belief that an attack either was imminent from a defector of some kind or some kind of intelligence we had over there, or what I said earlier, the indications from our warning systems that an attack was underway but hadn't yet, uh, no warheads had yet reached their targets in our country, we would get our weapons off the ground and go over there and attack what ICBMs they might still have in their silos and hadn't gotten out or their submarine ports, their command and control and whatnot. In other words, what was called a preemptive attack, which again would be first. It would be uh, our launching irreversibly weapons before any weapons had actually exploded in this country. And the next question you raised was, well, what would the consequences of that be? What the Joint Chiefs contemplated in early 61 was that our own first strike arising, let's say, over uh, Berlin, a new Berlin blockade uh, in 61, which was threatened, that the consequence would be killing 600 million people a hundred holocausts, as I saw it in, in horror when I saw their estimate. Uh, and that was a, a clearly a great underestimate because it didn't even allow for fire as a calculation. They felt that was too hard to predict where the winds would be and where the, how flammable the materials would be. So they didn't put that into their consequences. That was the major effect of uh, thermonuclear weapons. So uh, the casualties would have been well beyond that, and added to that would be the Russian retaliation, which would certainly annihilate Europe, uh, whatever it would have been against the U.S. So we're talking about a deliberate plan on our part to kill several hundred million people in the USSR and China alone. But then another hundred million in what we call the satellite countries, the so-called captive nations uh, in East Europe that are now part of NATO. And that wouldn't exist had a war occurred. And about 100 million in our allies, uh, NATO, Western Europe, due to fallout from the radioactivity, and the fallout from our attacks elsewhere to the east. So our, uh, our allies would be annihilated essentially by our own attacks without even a single warhead landing over there. It was the most insane and immoral plan that had ever been conceived, I would say, in the history of our species. And at the same time, it, it allowed, by the way, for no reserves, uh, no control once the go button was pushed, no stop order, no ability to call anybody back whether or not the president wanted to limit the war or the other side surrendered. There was no way to get a surrender. Moscow and the other command centers would be struck at the very outset. Uh, moreover, under any conflict with Russian troops anywhere, whether it was in uh, Yugoslavia or Iran or Berlin, would lead to our hitting every city in China as well as every city in Russia. When I say it was an insane, an insanely destructive plan, uh, that's what I'm describing. And this was before even the idea of, of nuclear winter was understood, which would have killed hundreds of millions more. Exactly so. It was another 20 years or more in 1983 
when scientists, uh, including Carl Sagan and others, Brian Toon, Turco, uh, a number of others, calculated that the effects of these attacks, in especially the fire they would cause, would um, loft smoke in a very high updrafts caused by firestorms, uh, which in turn were caused by the nuclear weapons. It would loft this smoke into the stratosphere where it wouldn't rain out and where it would quickly go around the earth. And we're talking now about more than 100 million tons of smoke and soot from these burning cities. That would block sunlight uh, to the extent of about 70% of the sunlight worldwide, killing all the harvests and much of the vegetation, any animals that depend on vegetation, including us. So they would all starve within a matter of months or a year, uh, not right away, uh, but there's about 60 days of food supplies in the world for the world population, a lot of it concentrated in a few countries, including our own. So we'd last a little longer in terms of months, in terms of eating uh, before we starved. And the effect, in other words, was that whether you went first or second, the effect would be the same, essentially, our own attacks or the Russians' own attacks when they acquired a similar capability in the mid-60s. They, too, got what could be called a doomsday machine, a system that would destroy nearly all humanity and, and make extinct, by the way, uh, totally uh, nearly every other large animal, larger than a squirrel, let's say. Uh, the Earth would be denuded of... Uh, much most complex life, animal life, and the vegetation. And that is true to this day. Uh, Russia and the U.S., despite having reduced their forces by some 80% or more, still have on alert, on a readiness posture, a hair trigger alert, capable of being triggered uh, by an expectation of the other side uh, attacking or the false alarm of a sort that has occurred a number of times, a false alarm. Uh, most recently that we know of in Russia, actually, after the Cold War, where uh, Yeltsin was actually poised over his apparatus, his button, uh, being urged to push it by uh, people in response to what was actually a weather rocket from Norway uh, that had been mistaken for a rocket heading for, for Moscow. So the world's survival, not the world's survival, but humanity's survival, the earth will go on, but without us, uh, is actually poised on this um, hair trigger possibility that inexcusably has persisted for the last 30 years after the cold, even after the cold war, and really was never justified, ever. It's been uh, this existence of doomsday machines was never justifiable but uh, combinations of inertia and industry, military-industrial complex uh, priorities in terms of building weapons, profits, jobs, employment on both sides now. Remember that Russia is now a capitalist country and has much the same incentives to uh, build these weapons as our corporations do, like Lockheed and others. And uh, that has kept these, these systems still in operation, threatening us all. And it's interesting that some of the conversations that we hear today with respect to North Korea are not that dissimilar from the conversations that you talk about that went on during Berlin. The Joint Chiefs talked to Kennedy about, we'll only kill 10 million people over there. Yeah, well, yes, that's a, a macabre aspect, which is being repeated in effect. When I said in 61 that the Russians... Soviets had only four ICBMs that could reach the United States. They also had some submarines with some cruise missiles that could reach the United States and even nuclear torpedoes. But uh, the Joint Chiefs, I believe, did know that reality more than they admitted. They were claiming, in order to get more weapons themselves, especially the Air Force, that the Russians had a lot more than they did. But I think they knew the reality, and as a result, they were assuring President Kennedy that in an in an all-out nuclear war over Berlin, which was a Berlin crisis that year, uh, the United States would lose no more than 10 million. Well, that was enough to uh, 
inhibits quite a bit are then President uh, Kennedy, much more than it did them, and apparently. But what they were saying, though, was the casualties will be over there, the bulk of them. Uh, the uh, actual, actually, there might not have been any casualties at all in this country if we, uh, the ICBMs would be theirs would be destroyed very easily. Uh, there might not be any submarines uh, capable of doing it, which would be the main danger. But Europe would be destroyed by our own attacks and again by their attacks directly a little sooner than the fallout would reach them. Their medium-range missiles and short-range aircraft and whatnot would annihilate our allies. Now we're hearing from Senator Lindsey Graham an assurance that if we get to war with North Korea, which could happen any time shortly, the casualties would be over there. That's a direct quote. The casualties, thousands, he said, and actually hundreds of thousands to millions would be a better estimate, will be all over there, he said. And, you know, sad as that is, the uh, president has to think about Americans and so forth. Uh, Macabre observations and not even reliable, because to get back to uh, what I was saying earlier, we can't be paralyzed, nor can the Russians be paralyzed in our retaliatory capability by one or more bombs on our command and control, on our leaders, on our uh, command centers. Uh, that will not paralyze our retaliation, even though we each plan to do it to the other uh, for not obvious reasons of rationality, but, you know, got to do something in a war, so that's what they do. Almost certainly North Korea has made comparable provisions in case plans are carried out, as were just described by uh, Rick Stillerson, actually, just this last week, our Secretary of State, for uh, special forces teams or drones or cruise missiles assassinating the central leaders of the North Korean system. what is the assumption that uh, Kim has not made the kind of provisions we've made to assure that there will be major retaliation in case he's killed or put out of action? Uh, almost surely he has done that. And it would not necessarily be all over there either. Uh, he doesn't have ICBMs, and we're, we're trying to prevent that. Uh, it would be much better to do it by negotiation than by an attack. but. He doesn't need an ICBM to make casualties in the United States. He has warheads. North Korea is a nuclear state now, uh, unlike the most of the other occasions when the U.S. president has made nuclear threats. This is the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis when a president has made direct threats of attack against a nuclear weapon state, as Korea is. Now, he can put any number of those warheads, and he has somewhere between 20 and 60, uh, he can put them on a boat, and it won't get here in 30 minutes like an ICBM, but it won't take 30 days to get a container on a boat or a ship, a perhaps radio-controlled boat, uh, certainly radio-controlled warhead, into a harbor in the West Coast like San Francisco or Los Angeles, or conceivably in a, ca- in a container uh, inside the country and cause not nuclear winter, but more casualties than the world has seen ever in a week or a day. Uh, Even without getting it to the United States, North Koreans have an ability to cause millions of casualties, deaths, in South Korea and Japan right away. And we've admittedly no no capability of, of destroying all that capability in a surprise attack. Uh, or or sustained attack. In fact, to get all of them, our military leaders have said we'll take a ground invasion of North Korea again, uh, as like over 50 years ago, and uh, uh, that would be a long a long process. So the idea, uh, the threat of going to war with North Korea over its nuclear program, is a threat of a, of a mad action. It's not one that will exterminate all humanity, but it will exterminate uh, hundreds of thousands to millions of people. You know, a scale of only one to a thousand of a war with Russia, but uh, as I say, more rapidly 
annihilating people than we've ever seen in human history. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. And and you know what company I'm talking about. It's basically the one company online. Uh, You know, you probably shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases or you have your standard selection of home goods delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. It'd be great if we could all avoid them somehow, but, you know, it's like climate change. What we really need is regulation, not just personal choices. So until we can get some anti-monopoly trust-busting legislation passed, a lot of us are going to continue to make the not completely irrational choice of shopping there. So whether you feel your conscience needs soothing or not, you can support the production of this show by using our affiliate link and redirecting some of those purchasing dollars to us. Your shopping experience is identical to usual and it won't cost you a dime more. So to get the link, go to bestoftheleft.com and use our banner to click through to either the US, Canada, or UK stores and bookmark the page so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think. And the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Did you know that there are still over 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world? This is enough to devastate our planet and destroy humanity several times over. Nuclear weapons are not clearly illegal under international law, so some states still possess and manufacture them. They should really be banned, just as chemical and biological weapons have been. But nuclear weapons are a billion-dollar industry. The money spent on these weapons could instead be spent on things the world actually needs. A mere fraction of the annual spending on nuclear weapons would be enough to give children all over the world access to primary education. The world's largest nuclear weapons manufacturers receive financing from over 300 financial institutions, including many banks. And the money that these banks use is your money. So while you are saving up for your holiday home, retirement, or perhaps that mountain trek in the Pyrenees you've always dreamt of, your money is being lent out to the nuclear weapons industry, to companies that build and modernize weapons of mass destruction. By stopping investment in the nuclear weapons industry, a great humanitarian catastrophe can be prevented. So what can you do? Ask your bank if they lend out money to companies that are involved in nuclear weapons production. If they do, don't bank on them. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, divest from nuclear weapons producers. Don't Bank on the Bomb is a regularly updated global report on the financing of nuclear weapons producers around the world. The report is produced by an organization from the Netherlands called PAX, which aims to bring together those who believe in peace and want to contribute to a just and peaceful world. The 2016 update of the report shows that 390 financial institutions from around the world invested 498 billion U.S. dollars into just 27 companies involved in the production, maintenance, and modernization of nuclear weapons since January 2013. Now, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that about 60% of those financial institutions are based in the U.S. and are responsible for 68% of the total global investment. And of course, you'll recognize some of their names, BlackRock, Capital Group, Vanguard, State Street, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan Chase are the top seven investors. Whether you want to personally divest or put pressure on financial institutions, Institutions to do so, head over to don'tbankonthebomb.com and click the Take Action tab. There you can tweet at your financial institution, download the organization's divestment campaigner guide, and get step-by-step guidance on how to personally divest from institutions supporting nuclear weapons.
Additional documents on engaging the public, media, government, and financial institutions, as well as articles on the latest nuclear weapons news, are also available on the website. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if stopping further investment in nuclear weapons is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about divesting from nuclear weapons producers via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. There's a sort of Korean carve-out. There's a sort of exceptionalism that is applied to analysis of Korea that it can't be dealt with, that we can't use the tools that we've used in other confrontations before to deal with North Korea. This is my fundamental disagreement with the, the path that we're going down now, which is that we can't use the tools of deterrence and brinkmanship the way that we use them in the Cold War. I mean, Iran's a natural example, but let's go back to the big example, the Soviet Union. Yeah. And the simple fact is we've sort of come to, to think that nuclear deterrence is a kind of concession, that if we end up adopting a deterrence framework with North Korea, that that's somehow letting them win because we've, in effect, de facto acknowledged that they are a nuclear state and that we have to deal with them as such, and that we're then somehow relying on their good faith and trust in order to not be in a war. That's nonsense. I mean, the truth is deterrence is a massively difficult and vigilant process. And so by calling for a deterrence, by calling for essentially mutually assured destruction rather than a preemptive war, you're making a, a choice that is going to be very vigorous and in its own way, you know, one that's very strong on military defense. I want to be careful in making this point because I'm not an expert here and better people than me, smarter people than me, more committed people than me have been working on this issue for a long time. But when I hear this, one reason that my bullshit detector goes completely crazy is that there is, to me, a way things look when you're terrified of something actually happening. And the way that looks is not just you're upset about it or you think about opening up the most costly possible solution, but that you actually are willing to make serious sacrifices to make the least costly solutions work out. So it is known that North Korea has, for an extremely long period of time, wanted to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with the American president. Right. Like that is just something they have wanted forever. It is something that in terms of lives and money is essentially costless to us. Now, we don't like it. It feels maybe humiliating. It feels like a bad precedent to set. You don't want to reward this kind of bad behavior. But those are pretty wan excuses when right. you're saying, on the other hand, the proliferation of biological weapons and the possible nuclear annihilation of the Korean peninsula. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we keep oscillating in this conversation between North Korea is so dangerous that uh, we possibly need to launch a first strike that will lead to hundreds of thousands of people being killed. Because if we don't do that, the long-term outcomes will be even worse and maybe it'll be millions killed. But also, they're not such a big deal that we want to break our discomfort with going and meeting one-on-one -on -one with Kim Jong-un. There's just something about it that is so completely unbalanced that it makes me wonder how much of this is an actual analysis of the situation and how much of this is there is a momentum towards conflict, towards drama, towards kinetic outcomes in the Washington foreign policy establishment. It's a space of people always looking to act grandly on the historical stage. And sometimes it feels like it is always looking for a crisis, always looking for something that justifies its own existence for being and its own reasons for panic. I agree completely with the concept that there is a momentum for war that is gathering right now. And I think it's a poisonous fact because one of the things that we know about Washington is that there is a certain social and professional benefit to endorsing a gathering idea. Present company accepted. You know, the truth is heterodox thinking is not always rewarded in Washington, as you know. And so there are a number of people in what we can call the sort of think tank establishment who are gradually easing into the idea that we can't afford to wait on North Korea. And I think that's a dangerous development. I'll give you an example of what I mean. When I was working recently on thinking 
thinking through policy outcomes. I was reading around and came upon an op-ed that was published in the New York Times in December of 2002, written by a otherwise worthy think tank scholar who was arguing why a war in Iraq was an absolute necessity because, as he put it, it was either war now or war later. And war later will be much worse. It'll be on their terms, not ours. You could transpose the language almost with perfect fidelity onto the North Korea debate right now. And I circulated this among some some friends who focus on these kinds of issues. And we were all struck by the way in which the sort of desiccated language of escalation and war is just reapplied in this new context. There's a real danger. You know, it sounds hyperbolic to compare it to Iraq and to say that we're sort of moving in that direction. But that's the conclusion I reached when I was there was the last line in my story was that before we go down the road in Korea, where we don't really understand what we're doing, let's be sure we're not doing something similar in Iraq. And Nick Kristof, who was in North Korea a few weeks later, ended up coming to a similar view. Something that, that I think about hearing that relates to what I've come to think of as a pretty significant analytical fallacy in Washington. And, and it happens in, in, all, in all issue areas. Policy experts in general, always and everywhere, underestimate the capacity to muddle through something. Mm-hmm. There's always this quality to draw like the chart and be like, well, at some point the lines on the chart need to meet. And if they don't, I mean, I see it in healthcare, which is a, mm-hmm. a less weighted example where people are like, it can't possibly keep going on like this. So either the system is going to collapse or we're going to have single payer reform or some kind of overhaul. But actually, people are willing to absorb more pain and more disorder and more mess and just let a kind of broken system flail forward, as far as I can tell, basically forever. And so there have been 15, 20 years now of people saying employers can't possibly allow, but then they do. And it just keeps going. And you see this a lot in foreign policy, this feeling that as if it's a logic problem and, you know, well, it, at some point we need to fix it. And so like either we fix it now or we fix it later, but it'll have to be fixed. And so what you're really weighing is a cost between doing something now and doing something later. But the way the world just works, it seems most things don't end up like that. You just end up with suboptimal outcomes for a very long time and you sort of make it work. Um, and, and I just I feel like that underestimation of the capacity to muddle through is really profound. Yeah, I think there's a false binary choice here that's being presented, that it's either uh, war in North Korea or something else. The truth is the fantasy of the big fix is so seductive. You know, it's the idea that... Let's steal that, the fantasy of the big fix. (laughs) I think that book probably comes out, you know, last week. But that's the illusion here. And the language that we heard around the mo- the natural example to return, you know, obviously to Iraq is the notion that we were going to go into this place. We were going to fiddle with a few knobs on the sociology and politics of the Middle East, and we would be presented with this solution that would satisfy all of our hopes. And the reality was a was obviously nothing like that at all. And I think the truth is that in in the Korean predicament, at least, there are a host of intermediate steps that would allow us to do what's called, let's call it optimized muddling through, rather than some grand historical solution. We've just heard clips today starting with Counterspin laying out some of the media reactions to Trump's calls for genocide in North Korea. Intercepted explained the terrifyingly simple process of launching a nuclear attack. Thinking Cap dove into some of the misguided and or outdated philosophies of nuclear weapons. Who, What, Why spoke with Daniel Ellsberg about the ramifications of nuclear war. We then heard a short video put out by PAX encouraging disinvestment from banks who fund nuclear weapons companies. Our activism for today is in support of that same campaign from PAX. And finally, we just heard the Ezra Klein Show explore some other non-military options for dealing with the North Korea situation. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now I just have some thoughts to finish up today. The the breaking news that, that 
that came out just this morning as I was prepping today's show is that North Korea seems willing to talk. Uh, those are all the, the headlines. Um, they've been having some productive talks between North and South Korea. It, you know, it sort of started with the Olympics in South Korea and, you know, they're little, they're doing the little diplomatic dance between the two. And so now as things progress, the latest signal is North Korea is willing to talk to the U.S. And now South Korea is in the position of trying to broker these talks and, you know, some form of peace between North Korea and the U.S., which sounds bizarre because theoretically we are there. We're in their land to help broker slash maintain peace between the two of them. So now those two countries, neighbors of each other with a shared history, are working things out amongst themselves, but they still feel compelled for, you know, for legitimate reasons, but bizarrely to, uh, even though they seem to be working things out okay, progress is being made between the two of them, uh, they now have to try to get the United States permission sort of to uh to have these talks so it, it, i can't help but think again like what the hell are we doing there it, it's obviously just stems from the bizarre decision we made 60 years ago to go to war there and you know all you have to do is look at like russia and china and imagine like boy if we didn't go to war in korea like they'd probably all be capitalists now so all that aside, bringing it back to uh, today, obviously Trump is going to try to take credit for this. He's He's been taking credit for the success of the Olympics, uh, everything that's happening with North Korea. If, if anything seems uh, to be moving in the direction of progress, Trump takes credit for it because he thinks his tough stance is what is it, it, it's he is the first mover in everything that happens in the world, basically. So just quick reminder that this is a process that has been long in the making. And remember that you don't have to read too many tea leaves to understand that what North Korea wants is respect first, deterrence from attack second, probably, and third, reunification. That, that's not like a new thing that they've come up with. Like the idea of them being at peace is not new. They're, they're not, you know, bloodthirsty monsters. You know, their, their propaganda for decades has been about reunifying with the South. So, you know, of course they want to be in charge and they want their leaders to be in charge and all that. But like war and violence has never been their stated goal. So just kind of put these things in perspective. Um, you know, when, when you see their actions through the lens of seeking respect, uh, it, it's not, it's not that complicated and it's really obvious that Trump is not the initial mover in this whole thing. Uh, in the articles whose headlines are all about how North Korea is willing to talk, some of them will mention that Part of their demands are that they be treated in these talks as equal negotiating partners, as nuclear powers. Basically, that's how countries get judged as whether or not they deserve to be treated as equals, as whether or not they have nuclear weapons. And so Trump obviously is trying to frame this as North Korea has finally come groveling to me because my tough stance has broken them. But you could just as easily see this as their coming out party. They've been demonstrating over the last few months that they're, you know, they're testing their missiles and they seem to have nuclear weapons at, at some degree. And there's a confluence with the thawing tensions with South Korea, uh, partly the, the, you know, somewhat coincidence of the Olympic Games happening in South Korea and that sort of greased the skids a bit for those, uh, you know, diplomatic interchanges between the two. So all these things are happening at the same time, uh, all of which were in play and, and sort of in motion long before Trump came on the scene. And so the whole uh, North Korean nuclear program has obviously always been geared 
towards gaining respect for their country, you know, respect and defense. It's, it's not actually that different than any other country who's, uh, who has or is trying to get nuclear weapons. And so I'm not even an expert on this stuff by any stretch, but it just doesn't seem that confusing that if, if you can take a moment to look at the situation from another perspective, from a from the, you know, a U.S. centric perspective where the U.S. is guiding and influencing everything that happens around the world. They've been trying to make these weapons for a couple of decades. The goal has always been to gain respect. They seem to have built them. And now they're asking for talks in which they are treated as equals. It seems like they're just on that same path of trying to demand respect from everyone and, uh, and and so any claims that this is a, a a great success for a tough stance on them seems uh, misguided at best. At worst, uh, what this reminds me of is some some of the the the, the split in the progressive uh, wing of the uh, you know the the left side of of politics in the US some you know a few people said before the election like you know what we might be better off having Trump because things will be so bad that it'll create a backlash and there'll be a progressive wave and you know things will become better in the future than we ever could have made them going ahead with normal sort of corporatist democrat types and i thought at the time and said at the time, look, that ar- it's not that that argument isn't necessarily correct. It's that I think it's still immoral because so many people are going to suffer in the meantime and so many things have to go right <laughs> or so many things have to not go horribly, horribly wrong in the meantime for us to get to that eventuality. And, and so we could take the wrong lesson from this if we believe the idea that Trump's tough stance on North Korea is what brought about this outcome, which I don't think there is very strong evidence uh, to believe. But if we go down the road of believing that, then it reinforces the idea that we should be crazier. We should be less flexible. We should be less willing to use our diplomacy and more willing to use our military, even just as a threat. Uh, If this miraculously works out amazingly well, uh, what I fear is that the U.S. is going to take the lesson that we need to throw our weight around even more than we already do, because that's what gets people's attention when uh, it doesn't seem that that should be the lesson at all. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, I'd love to hear them. Keep the comments coming in. As always, the number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.